passage of Scripture, Matthew chapter 5, verses 1 through 12 this morning, the Beatitudes. It's one of those weeks that walking into study uh, of the Beatitudes, knowing that there would be a fair amount of work uh, ahead for me, um, not knowing how complex that work would become. And there are certain passages of Scripture uh, that over the years when you study them, you spend time in them, uh, you become aware of there's just some complexity here that I'm not sure I fully am grasping or understanding. And the Beatitudes has long been one of those for me, uh, but admittedly spent far more time over the last few weeks, and then in particular this week, obviously, invested in them, and uh, was thrilled with the clarity over time that, that erupted as a result of that study. And so then it became the complexity of how do I communicate these nuanced understandings and the complexity of the text actually in an understandable and reasonable way this morning. So it has been my prayer that this message would be clear. It has been said that a mist in the pulpit is a fog in the pews. Um, we don't even have pews, so I'm sure it doesn't apply. So um, just we're going to have to do some heavy lifting this week, um, but, but I am convinced it will be a blessing to you if you're able to stay on the journey with us as we work through it. I want to begin this morning by reading these 12 verses. And uh, really, verse 1 and 2 are the intro. And then you have these Beatitudes. You have eight st- or nine statements total, but eight. And then one that's kind of a capstone summary of them. Uh, I'll talk about the structure here in a little bit even more. But they, you could roughly divide them into groups of four. Uh, that's one approach, and the first apply to how do you love God, uh, or love expressions of loving God, and the second four apply to expressions of loving others or loving our neighbor. The Ten Commandments are similarly broken down that way. Or you could break them down in groups of threes uh, as well, and so it all depends on what commentaries you read, and I, I think there's validity to both, but I'm going to primarily focus on that division of four later in the sermon. Just, just want to give you some intro, some runway um, as, as we're about to uh, take this plane off in the air. So if you've got your Bibles, Matthew chapter 5, I'm going to start in verse 1, read down through verse 12, and then by God's grace we're going to dig in this morning. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him, and he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad. For your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Now, in our day and age, how we think about this passage uh, will tremendously influence just our daily life. This is intended to be practical expressions for how you and I should live. And they're all centered on this one major concept. What does it look like to flourish in this life? This is the dominant theme, and I'm going to walk us through that to help us understand that linguistically, uh, as well as theologically, doctrinally, as he expresses it here. This is the approach of Christ, though, 
at this moment. So I want to stop here at the very beginning and ask, what does it mean to flourish? Uh, what does that look like? There was actually a question, uh, those of you that were able to participate in our life groups this past week, that was one of those questions. What does it mean to flourish? What does that look like? And I was trying to prime the pump even as, a far, as early as last week to help us begin to think this way. Let me throw some obstacles uh, because overcoming obstacles helps you ingrain truth, right? So <clears throat> what would it mean if somebody was a fan of basketball? If we had a, a young person a young teenager, 13, 14, and they loved basketball. What would it mean for them to flourish in basketball? Would it mean that one day they play in the NBA? Is that Would that become the, the, the marker of they have flourished? Or could it be they just play on the collegiate level? D1, obviously top rank, but maybe they, they only play D3. Maybe they play at a community college in basketball. Maybe they, they only ever make the high school team. Where do we draw the line of flourishing uh, for someone who would love basketball? Or we think of even, what if someone has uh, particular kinds of handicaps or disabilities? Would participation in Special Olympics, is that the, the, the mark of flourishing? Have they flourished because they're able to play in Special Olympics? Or uh, even some of the young people, the young men my, my youngest son uh, works with who are special needs at his school, some of them don't have the ability, they would not have the capacity to even play a game of basketball, and so they compete in skills challenges, dribbling, shooting, free throw shooting, uh, three-point shooting, passing the ball. Is that flourishing? I'm throwing this out here because as an example for you just to think this way, when we say flourishing, it can be uh, influenced, it can be barriered, boundaried, fenced in by your capacity. What is your capacity what is one person's capacity over another could change the way we perceive are they flourishing. We can apply it economically. What does it mean to flourish economically? Well, we can go to Ephesians and it says that you shouldn't steal, but you should work and be generous to others. So we could say a biblical concept of flourishing would be I make enough that I can work and that I can give to others. Um, that'd be one. But does it look the same to flourish economically if, say, you are a refugee living in a country that you don't even speak that language? That's not your first language. It's you have to learn another language. What does flourishing for, for someone in that situation look like? As opposed to someone who maybe has grown up in a well-adjusted two-parent home with generational wealth. What does flourishing look like in that situation? And so we understand that sometimes flourishing can have to do with your own capacity. Sometimes flourishing can have to do with the context that you're living in. So we, we end up with this moving target that makes it very difficult for any of us to apply it to our lives when we're asking what is human flourishing? What does it mean to thrive and to flourishing? And so the reality is in history, this concept has been debated for a long time. Uh, so you got, you got great philosophers here on the screen, Epicurus, Plato, Socrates with Bill and Ted from Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure, 1989. Um, if you don't know that movie, you're missing out on, an, on a classic, right? So um, Epicurus was a famous hedonist. And Epicurus said the way to you flourishing is do what you want ultimately and do what makes you happy. So every person's individual flourishing has to do with what they want to do and who they want to be. Plato and Socrates, they come along and they say, no, that's not how you flourish. You flourish by what we call virtue ethics, morality. 
That's what flourishing is. Because they understood this about hedonism. If, if your hedonistic ideal is to be served, somebody else has to serve you. So not everybody can flourish in your scheme. Or in hedonism, you, what would make you happy punishes everybody else. Well, then everybody else is suffering for you. You become God. And they recognize the pursuit of self cannot be what human flourishing is built upon. And so instead they recognize that sometimes flourishing can be serving other people. Look at parents. And you're investing in a child and you're raising this baby and you have moms getting up in the middle of the night and changing diapers and feeding and, and flourishing. There can be a real thriving in life by caring for others or caring for the poor, the weak, the sick, the, uh, the, those that are experiencing injustice. So human flourishing could exist beyond this. And they recognize, these virtue ethics guys, they recognize that human flourishing really should impact everyone around you. And so you have an, Bill and Ted's a more excellent way is what they claim. And Socrates shows up and says, be well to everybody else and be kind to everybody else. And they rave about it. And it's this idea that human flourishing has to do with the community. So when one flourishes, everyone flourishes. But what all these guys leave out of it, all of them, is God and eternity. It's all about now. And it's only about now. And so while we believe, I believe, that humanity thrives best in a democracy, democratic system, that permits us to pursue life and liberty, freedom, for our happiness. Yet the struggles largely in our own culture surround what happens if that becomes hedonism and we start running into each other. What if what makes me happy infringes on your belief system? How do we function? And what gets left out of it is God and eternity. And so as Christians, we're left with the question of what does it really then mean to flourish as a Christian? What does that look like? Does God speak into that? Well, interestingly enough, he absolutely speaks into it. And we could go to the Old Testament wisdom literature to see how does he speak into it. In, in, uh, Ecclesi in Proverbs, he basically gives us a whole scheme. In Proverbs, if you want to flourish, then live wisely. In Ecclesiastes, he builds upon it, but he tells us uh, if you want to live, enjoy life, live wisely and enjoy the gifts that God has given you. And then Job speaks into it. How do you flourish in the midst of suffering? Things outside of your control in a context that you wouldn't want. I'm going to make the argument this morning that the Beatitudes are the stake in the ground, the line in the sand declaration from God of what does it look like to flourish in this world. And not just in this world, but in the world to come. And so it is not God's design that we live miserable lives as Christians. It is not God's design that we hate life. Peter even later quotes from the Psalms, if you would love life and have long days. How do we flourish? And what does flourishing look like in the face of astounding difficulty? And can he give us statements that would speak to whatever your capacity is? Whether you would be the kid that could make it to the NBA or the kid that the best you could do is skills levels. How can, both, how can everyone flourish? This is what the Beatitudes are arguing. 
Nine statements of human flourishing. They tell us what flourishing looks like in the face of obstacles. They are the start to the Sermon on the Mount. Christ is going to live every single one of these out in front of us throughout the rest of Matthew's gospel. And so we can walk away from the Beatitudes this morning with this idea. A life of flourishing is found walking in the steps of Christ. If you would flourish, it will be to be like Christ. That is how you can flourish in this life. And so we can walk through the text this morning then with that hopefully introduction and preparation for a more excellent way. How do we get there? Well, let's understand a little bit of the structure. And this is where we have to do some of the heavy lifting. Um, you know, uh, those of you that heard me preach long enough, I, I try to leave as much of the complexity out of the, in, in the study room to make it as, as accessible for each of us. But this is one of those moments that I've got to do some heavy lifting with you about some language choices that are made here. Uh, to help you understand. Now, for most of you, the vast majority, if you're sitting here this morning, whatever version of the Bible you have, it probably says blessed. And it, it has these statements of blessed, blessed, blessed. Um, you have these nine different blessings. Uh, some of you may have a, the contemporary English translation that says happy are you. Uh, and some other version translations would translate these words as happy. Well, what are we trying to get at and what does it mean? If you had a very, very, very old version, and so uh, none of you would have this this morning. It would even say blessed, B-L-E-S-T, instead of blessed. And so uh, trying to borrow some of these different versions of the word. But what is Jesus really saying here? And it has everything to do with what we call them. And so we got a little bit of language time here work to do this morning. Well, they're called Beatitudes because it comes from the Latin Vulgate translation from the Greek. And so it literally is BT sunt and would mean blessed are you. And, and so from that, the, the derivative was a beatitude. So we even call these the beatitudes because we're saying the blessed are you statements of Jesus Christ. That's what we're going after. Now, here is the problem. When you were to look at the Hebrew of blessings, this is written in Greek, but when you look at the Hebrew, there are two dominant words in the Hebrew that are commonly translated as blessed or blessing in the Old Testament. Two. Two different ones. They have two totally different meanings. And then there's two words in the Greek that were used to translate those two words in Hebrew. And guess what? They're both translated blessing, and they have two very different meanings. So we're getting one word trying to define four different words. It, you don't have to be a linguist to know that's going to be a problem. We're going to miss some meaning by doing that. Um, and I'm going to walk you through some of the language of this, but then show you how you don't need to know Greek or Hebrew to understand this New Testament. It just would take you lots more work from reading and studying behind the scenes, which is fine, because um, I am no Greek and Hebrew expert either, but, but we can get there this morning together. So let me show you the differences then. So basically you have one set of a Hebrew and Greek word, and you have another set of Hebrew and Greek word. How do we understand them? I'm going to give you the two dominant meanings. The first one is actually found in the text that Jonathan read, a portion of the text that Jonathan read this morning, very famous, what we call a benediction. <clears throat> Excuse me. There's actually lots and lots of churches that finish every service with this benediction prayer. It's a beautiful prayer. It's a priestly prayer um, that's prayed over the people. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, speak to Aaron and his sons saying, thus you shall bless the people of Israel. You shall say to them, the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. So shall they put my name upon the people of Israel, and I will bless them. 
Now, this is one dominant idea of what it means to be blessed. What does this mean? This means we are imparting God's favor upon you. That's what that means. It's like when um, my dad would look at me and say, I'm proud of you. Um, uh, I had a boss before said, I'm, I'm proud of what you guys have done. He, at the end of the year, he'd take us out to uh, take the whole company out to Christmas dinner, the, the main portion of the company, take us out to Christmas dinner at Ruth's Chris Steakhouse in downtown Baltimore. And I remember him saying, I, I'm proud of you guys. And he gave us each a Christmas bonus. And so this is the idea of favor placed upon somebody that comes with extra bennies, to put it in modern day language. I like what you did. Here you go. This is like, this is like uh, one way to understand it would be tipping somebody. Have, I'm pleased with what you did. You've done an amazing job. Here you go. Here's the extra for this. And so when you look at this, you can actually see this. He's, he's saying it in a generic way, but God caused his face to shine on you. That means he's looking upon you with favor. He's going to be gracious to you. He's going to give you good things. Um, he's going to lift up his face to you. And it's fascinating because it really says what he's going to give them is shalom or peace. And all that that entails, the rest of, in, in life, the relaxation of life, because you are no longer confronted by the enemies around you, you have God's peace upon you. And so you could look throughout most of the Old Testament and see this in action. You can see God promising them a land flowing with what? Milk and honey. They come back. They have grapes as big as men's fists. They, they defeat giants in the land. And so this is the blessing of God. My favor that results in gifts to my covenant people. That is a dominant idea of blessing. I see you with favor, and I give you good things. Now, if you just have your Bibles and you look at Matthew 5, we only have to read a few verses to know that's going to be a problem if that's what this means. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. If this means that, if this means God looks upon you with favor and now gives you something, what has happened in that verse? You have put in poor in, poor in spirit... And it has earned you what? Heaven. Record scratch. I wish I, sometimes I wish when I preach there was sound effects. Wait a minute, Steve. That doesn't sound much like grace at all. That sounds like I'm earning heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Somehow what I'm mourning about earns me comfort. Somehow my meekness earns me inheriting the earth. Now, if that's what the text's saying, then that's what the text says, and we need to take the text. But that's one group of the word blessing. Trying to divide that understanding is why some of these other translations translated as happy. Because saying that I, that's not what's going on here. That's why older translations use the word blessed. We can actually read it in our English this way, right? We even sometimes, if we're very careful in our reading, um, and, and some people love to read publicly when they were growing up, and other people are like, please don't ever make me read out loud. That's fine, wherever camp you're at. But sometimes people read very carefully, and so some of you are enough into language that you would understand this way. If I read it, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven, if I say blessed are the poor in spirit, is different. It's actually 
means something different than if I say blessed are the poor in spirit. That's as close as we can get. Because we've left behind the word blessed, B-L-E-S-E-T, so we or B-L-E-S-T, so we emphasize different, you know, what is it, put the emphasis on the different syllable. We're saying two different things. That's what we're trying to do here. This is just the, this is because, frankly, Hebrew and Greek are beautiful, and English is clumsy. Like, that's, that's really what the problem is here. So there is another way, though, and it's found in Psalm 1, and what Darren read this morning. This is a totally different word, but you'll see it's translated the same way. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He's like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither, and all that he does he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment or sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. This is not the same word. That word blessed there, blessed, is not the same word. It doesn't mean at all someone who is experiencing God's covenantal favor and his gifts. Rather, it is a statement on who he is when we look at him in life, and get this, the happiness and joy in which he's walking this journey of life. It is most commonly viewed as scholars as this, flourishing. This guy is thriving. Have you ever looked at somebody and said, man, they are thriving. They are flourishing. Look at how they are getting through life. And so the, the, the ultimate like exclamation point of that is we're careful theologians, is verse 3, it describes what his life is like, and it gives you a visual image of it. He's like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, its leaf does not wither, and all that he does he prospers. It is a declaration of how he's getting through life. And what's fascinating about that is how would you know that its leaf's not withering? How would you know that what he's doing is prospering? How would you know that it's bearing fruit? Because it sometimes is demonstrating this when it's living in the middle of a desert. When there's no reason to think that it should be bearing fruit. There's no reason to think that his leaf would not be withered. There's no reason to think that there's this flourishing. You'd be shocked by finding this thriving, flourishing tree. This is a declaration of happiness and joy and moving through life in a way that despite everything that happens around it, it thrives and it flourishes. The Greek word for it is makaros. There's all these different iterations of it. And so what we actually have here in the Beatitudes are what are called macarisms or macarisms. Think of macaroons, um, which they flourish. So at least my daughter thinks so. Um, the crunchy little uh, pastry made in France. So you have these statements then of flourishing are the poor in spirit. In other words, the poor in spirit are thriving in a situation that is otherwise difficult. And they're thriving now in that situation. And guess what they're also going to do? Thrive in eternity. These are philosophical statements of how you get through life. 
and how you thrive in every circumstance. An important, another important distinction here. When you look at these different words in the Old Testament, and then as they carry forward into the New Testament, the first category of blessing, God's covenant favor upon you, that results in good things for you, it has an opposite. And so the flip side of a blessing is a cursing. And so it, you end up with all these statements of cursed is the one who doesn't do this. Blessed is the one who does this. Cursed is the one who doesn't. Blessed is the one who calls upon my name. Cursed is the one who doesn't. Blessed is the one who is my child. Cursed is the one who isn't. But, and they are statements of judgment. And so there's all these cursings that happen. So the flip side of the blessing, the first category of blessing is a cursing. But the flip side to the other one is not cursing, it's a woe, which is interesting. And woe is when you look at somebody's your life, and you would literally, this would be easy to remember, you look at how they're doing life and you go, whoa, that stinks. <laughs> like, I don't want to, have you ever seen somebody and you're like, I don't want to live life like that? Um, my sons and I had an opportunity yesterday, we went and helped clean out a house. And it was a woe lifestyle moment. Because uh, we're cleaning up this house, and unfortunately, this gentleman has had a heroin problem and an alcohol problem. Um, so he loses his house, had to move out in February. It's being renovated, flipped, this kind of thing. So you have to move out the detrius of this person's life. And there was a bedroom in the back there that was woe. And there were stains and uh, roaches, and it was filthy and it was a woe kind of moment this is a life of a man who clearly is suffering most mentally and emotionally and is experiencing frankly sowed to the wind reaping the whirlwind of decisions in life and so I don't mean this in a judgmental way but you look at certain people in life and you're like whoa I don't want to live that life that is not a thriving life. Look, at, Psalm 1 describes it. If thriving is a tree that's bearing fruit and its leaf don't wither, woe is you're like the chaff of the wind blown around. There's no stability to you. There's no rootedness to you. There's no fruitfulness to your life. And so they both experience the desert. One responds one way, one responds another way. The flip side to this is not cursing. It's a woe-filled life. Luke records some of the Beatitudes as well, and you can actually see that Luke attaches the sermon of Jesus in such a way to show this to you. He lifted up his eyes to his disciples, said, Blessed are you who are poor, yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who hungry now, for you shall be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. Blessed are you when people hate you, when they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day, leap for joy. For behold, your reward is great in heaven, for so their fathers did to their prophets. But woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. Woe to you who are full now, for you shall be hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. Woe to you when people speak well of you, for so their fathers did to the false prophets. Now this is some cultural, shifting, mind-blowing statements. Because I don't think many of us look at a Jeff Bezos, one of the wealthiest men on the planet, and think, whoa. We think of alcoholic heroin addiction guy and think, whoa. But Jesus tells us that the kind of lives that we would, in our natural state, think are thriving is not what is thriving at all. 
but it creates a distance between them and their heavenly father. So we should look at them and actually pity them. You want to live a thriving life? I am swapping your values. I am scrambling the eggs of what everything out there says is success. And I'm telling you, if you and I would live a thriving, flourishing life, it will only happen as we walk in the steps of Jesus, both now and in eternity. This is what he's telling us. And so it is like this mind-blowing, wow. You know, you, you talk to parents and you're like, what do you want for your kids? And there's so much you want for your kids. There's so much. There's so much. But may we never get to the point that the first thought that comes to our mind is that they know and love Jesus and walk with him. That's, that's right? Because that's what will be thriving. Not their job title, not how many degrees hang on the wall, not if they're married or not married, not if they give us grandkids or not. I'd really like them one day, no pressure. At least, not, at least for a decade, right? Um, you know, what, what's thrive, what, does, what does it mean? But, but most of all, most of all, it's that they would know and love Jesus. And so Jesus is telling them, what does it look like to thrive? Now, I showed you this in Luke just because of sake of time, but Matthew actually structures his sermon the same, same way because you will get to the end of his life, and Matthew wants to show you this at the beginning, but one of the last sermons Jesus preaches is he pronounces seven woes. This is what a thriving life looks like. This is what a non-thriving life looks like. This is flourishing. This is woe. This is blessing. This is woe. And Matthew just builds it longer. Luke just got there quicker. Just different preachers. That's all it is. And so, now, I've shown you linguistically, you don't have to know Greek or Hebrew. And, and I assure you, if you spent time studying, reading, passionate about this, you would have gotten here as well. But, but how do you do that? Well, all you have to do is keep your finger there at Matthew 5 at the start of the sermon. Look at what he says at the end of the sermon. So this has a lot more to do with wisdom, virtue, living, than anything to do with what does it mean to be justified or not, to be saved or not. How does he end? He ends with statements all about wisdom. If you want to have build your house upon the rock, this is what wise will is. Everyone, verse 24, who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And now he describes what life is like. Rain falls, the floods came, the winds blew, beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. Everyone who, does, who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. The rain fell, the floods came, the winds blew and beat against the house of it, and it fell, and great was the fall of it. This is a different... So if Psalm 1 pictures it as a desert wind comes, are you like a tree or a chaff? Jesus pictures a flourishing life like a house either built on the rock or a woeful life, a house built on the sand. These are wisdom statements. How are you doing life? You can be here this morning and know Jesus, and hear me now, be living in a woe-filled way. And that stinks. Because we want to be living in a flourishing way. Now, does any of this really matter, or am I making a lot of fluff about nothing? I mean, is it really important? Is it this important, Steve? You've, you're taking the first whole third or 40% of your sermon to, to explain this to us. 
Yes. Number one, number one, it matters because we want to know what God is telling us. So whatever God says, that's what we want to know. It also matters secondarily because it can radically alter how you interpret and apply these verses. Both of those should be enough. But practically, practically it matters to us as well. And it matters because the Sermon on the Mount functions like a living illustration from the life of Jesus about how to live out the Proverbs of Wisdom, the delight of life in Ecclesiastes, and the flourishing of life when it all goes wrong from Job. The Sermon on the Mount and the Beatitudes in particular become an everyday, every man's guidebook for living a flourishing life. And that is worthwhile. How does it do that? It does it with its structure. First, I told you this a few moments ago, uh, it centers on a life that is loving God and loving others. So the first several talk about loving God, and they all relate to how do I flourish in life as I am loving God, and then the second half is I flourish in life as I am living in a particular way as I love my neighbor. It's flourishing to live in a particular Jesus way when you think about how do I deal with poverty in my life or impoverishing conditions in my life? How do I live in a particular way when I'm going through sorrow, when I'm suffering? Can I flourish while I'm suffering? Yes, you can, apparently. Can I flourish when I have enemies? Yes, you can. Can I thrive and be like a tree bearing fruit when life stinks? When life is like Job? Yes, you can. As we've already talked about, flourishing seems to have so much to do with capacity and context. But Jesus is telling us that you can flourish now and in eternity. And so first and foremost, there's a structure here that tells us how we can begin to flourish. Love God, love your neighbor. And as we talked about last week, he's going to blow those out and expand those so much throughout the rest of the sermon. But secondarily, secondarily, we can flourish in life because we are assured of our already stable relationship with God. I can flourish now no matter what I'm going through because I have a confidence in who I am in Christ and that I have been redeemed. You can see this with the capstone statement at the end. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad. This, this is actually emotionally happy language. That if you have experienced this, you know is really hard. Rejoice and be glad. Why? For my reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. The philosophers, Plato, Socrates, Epicurus, I told you what they left out was God and eternity. God's way, Jesus' way of living a life of meaning and of value and of worth and of flourishing includes these two dominant issues, your relationship with God and what eternity will be like. And so the whole structure and layout of the Beatitudes is intended and is designed to help us begin to understand in every situation that we're facing, what is the pathway of wisdom that I can choose that results in flourishing? Now, what do they mean? And so I want to talk to you about uh, some ways that these are commonly misinterpreted that create a great deal of confusion in people's hearts and lives. And as I was studying this, realized why they fell so flat for me even as a teenager when I memorized them because I fell into these ditches 
One dominant way to misinterpret them is to view these as entrance exams to heaven. In other words, you have to do this to get heaven. If you're not meek, you don't get to inherit the earth. If you're not a peacemaker, you don't get to be called the sons of God. And so one dominant way of viewing these is really in a very legalistic way. If you're meek, you get the earth. If you're peacemaker, you get to be a son or daughter of God. If you're mourn, then you get comfort. This has huge problems because suddenly salvation becomes about what you do to earn it rather than living out the reality of Christ already in you. These then become heavy legalistic demands placed upon every person. Grace and the power and the strength of Christ go out the window. Because I have to do this to get that. That is a direct result, frankly, of misreading and, and bad translating. Because we hear it and we suddenly interpret it as that first category. Even though internally, theologically, we know that can't be true. I know that salvation is by grace through faith alone. That as, as God and his kindness opens my eyes and I turn from my sin and put my faith in Christ, that I'm saved. That it's not that I have to do that and then I also have to start being a peacemaker in order to get saved. Or I have to be pure in heart in order to get saved. Or I have to be meek in order to get this. I have to do this in store in order to get this. Like we know internally it can't be that. And so we read these. And so that's why sometimes we just gloss over them or we ignore them. Because they just become these impossible legalistic demands placed upon us. And so a common way to misinterpret them is to view them as, as entrance exams to be considered a Christian. That's wrong. It's not true. That's not a right translation or interpretation. A second way to interpret these is to place their focus solely on the future, solely on eternity. This was the common, and, and I say, that doesn't even feel fair, but in the Reformation age, that became a dominant approach. Because quite frankly, it isn't fun to go through life poor or mourning or having to be meek or having to experience injustice, or having to show mercy, or having to fight for purity, or having to be a peacemaker means you're in the midst of a bunch of enemies, or being persecuted, or having other people slander your name. Like, that's horrible. And so one, another way to interpret it is that the first half of all these Beatitudes talk about the, the stink of life, and we're just Christians plowing through. Bless God, I'm headed home. And one day it all gets better. And so Christianity becomes pie-in-the-sky living. Let me just get through tomorrow. Let me just get through the next day. Can I just ask you, does that sound like flourishing? It doesn't, does it? Because it's not. Now, we've all been there. You live long enough on this planet, you've had these moments. Let me just get through tomorrow. <laughs> right? Let me just get through that. Whew. I just got to get through. Let me get through this. Let me get through this. Um, but that's not flourishing. And so... The reality is the statement begins to not even make sense anymore. <laughs> Happy are the poor in spirit, are flourishing are the poor, blessed by God are the poor in spirit because mine's the kingdom. Blessed by God are the meek. I'm having to keep myself from hitting this dude because he's a crazy man. I'm trying to show some self-control meekness, but I'm happy in this? What? These two erroneous ways make the Beatitudes lose their strength and their value and their worth to us. 
But we've done all of this complex work so far this morning to move us to a more excellent way. God is burdened for you and I to flourish now, not just then. The word choice here, the fact that this is the opening of what the kingdom sermon is all about, the concluding exhortations to life, lives of fruit, lives of wisdom, uh, living on the, the narrow path and having a life that brings forth fruit instead of a false teacher and having a life that's built on the rock instead of the sand. All of this is tying together. Jesus is the ultimate king philosopher showing up and saying, I'm showing you a better way of how you can flourish in my under my rule and my reign. And you know what ultimately the rest of Matthew is going to be? Watch me and follow me. Doesn't that sound familiar? So that you can live in a life that's thriving. Now we've done all that work. <clears throat> Some of you are like, walk us through them. And I'm going to walk us briefly through them for two reasons. One, because I absolutely believe this is how Jesus intended them. He intended them as statements for you to, frankly, unpack throughout the rest of your life. But he also intended them as statements to give a totality of life. So a summary, a, a fly review. And he thirdly intended to plant this in the minds of people so that as they watched his life for the next three years, they would see each one of these lived out. And Matthew does that for us throughout the rest of this gospel. So you will get them unpacked in more detail as we move forward. But I want to honor that. And so how do we do it? Well, first of all, can I just talk about, um, let me go back because that'll confuse you, some of you. What would it look like if sin had never happened? What would it have looked like to flourish if Adam and Eve had never made those disastrous decisions? Um, what would work have looked like? Because there was still work, right? He told, put them in the garden, told them to tend it. He wanted them to be fruitful and multiply. He wanted them to fill the earth. What would work have looked like? It would have looked valuable and fruitful. Have you ever done work and it felt like a waste of your time? In the absence of sin, guess what? No work would have ever felt like a waste of time. There would have been the absence of thorns and weeds, things that just prick you and make you bleed for no good reason. Things that just reach up and choke out the life of what you've built or constructed, what you've labored over. There would have been unbelievable creativity as we would have leaned into one another's gifts and, and desires and we would have showcased things to build for God's glory. There would have been structures and relationships. There would have been ideals and literature and books all just expanding bigger and bigger and bigger. The glory and the majesty of God work would have looked just unbelievably different. Joyously different. Yesterday I took a video of this house before we started. <clears throat> and a, then at the end I took another video of when we were done. There's so much more work to do. But just I did that because I wanted to be able to see the difference. Because you wanted there to be some value to it. But the work also came with allergy attacks and some pretty gross things. It came with thorns and weeds. And so even the goodness of it felt tainted. The work in a world where there had been no sin ever would never involve that. What would relationships have looked like if there had never been sin? No conflict. No strained relationships. 
No loss of relationships. No cost to them. Joy in sacrificially loving one another. The ultimate virtue ethics kind of living. What would community have looked like with unity instead of mobs and revolts? What would governing have looked like? Care and concern instead of demand and lies. Flourishing would look stunningly different in a world without sin. And in fact, that's what the second half of every one of these Beatitudes helps us look forward to. A world without sin. Can I just tell you something? I don't want to inherit this earth. I have no interest. Have you looked around? God is going to have to do something to make this even appealing to inherit, doesn't he? Um, I never understood this as a kid. Worked certain jobs and there would always be people, they'd be like, I don't want to be the boss, man. I don't want to, why do I want to be the boss? And I never understood it as a kid. I was always like, what, wouldn't you want to be the leader? Then after you've led a little while, you kind of see the problems. Not everybody wants to row the boat in the same direction. You got people going this way, people going that way, mad at you. They blame you for stuff that's not ever your problem. They talk bad about you. Like, it's like, I don't want to, you know what? Jesus needs to do something to this world to make me want to inherit it. He's going to. He's going to wipe out sin. Then you're like, now, that, now that's another prospect. I'll take that. To be called the son or daughter of God. To experience the power of God expressed around you and in you. The second half of every one of these tells you the kind of people who walk in the steps of Jesus flourishing now are the exact people who will flourish then and this is what it's going to look like. It's going to look like comfort and care and compassion received in person in real time. It's going to look like heaven itself. It's going to look like inheriting the earth. It's going to look like satisfaction when before you're dissatisfied over injustice and error and sin and wickedness. It's going to look like no more fight for purity morally or integrity because you're in the very presence of God. Flourishing then will look like it is no sin because there won't be. You and I will maybe experience shadows of these things, but we will not taste the full meal. Of, this is the Costco sample, not the full thing that we get now. But Jesus doesn't want us to just flourish in heaven. He wants that. He wants that. He will make that happen, but he wants us to flourish now. How does that happen then? Eight truths. There's a lot there. You're going to be like, I can't write all that down. I print my notes. It's video. You can catch it on Facebook. You can pause it. I, so I don't promise that, you, that, that you'll be able to write all this down. First one, he says, poor in spirit. Blessed or flourishing of the poor in spirit. To be poor in spirit is an awareness of your spiritual need and a dependence upon God. <laughs> Epicurus' name is still uttered over 2,000 years later. He didn't flourish. He never knew God. The poorest orphan on the planet who knows Jesus is living a flourishing life better than the richest person who walks the globe. 
Because to be poor in spirit is to recognize that I'm in a spiritually impoverished condition that lives a life that's totally dependent on God. That is a flourishing life. A flourishing life is one who lives every day knowing I need Jesus. As the, as the old saint, the sister saint used to give testimony in the church I grew up in, I praise God I woke up today in my right mind. Because I need Jesus today. You are flourishing when you walk in your awareness of Jesus. Before I was afflicted, I went astray is what David says. You want to flourish? You want to thrive in this life? Live every moment of every day in an intense awareness of your need for God. Jesus shows this to us, doesn't he? Not my will, but your will be done. He does his miracles and his works, yes, in the power of his own deity, his own divinity. But the Matthew has already shown us through the power of the spirit that's poured into him. Jesus shows us what it's like to live a thriving life based on his power because he was demonstrating to us what it looks like to walk that way. He says, blessed or flourishing are those who mourn. It's a brokenness over sin and its cost. We think of Jesus just weeping for the lost of Israel, his, his heart just aching for the sheep without a shepherd, and his own tears when he is weeping at the death of Lazarus and the sorrow that that brought, just broken over sin. Flourishing people are people who are broken over the sin of this world. Flourishing people are the kind of people that walk through the detrius of other people's lives and you are broken and longing for them to know and see Jesus. Flourishing in the midst of thorns and weeds is a recognition that this world is afflicted with pain and your heart aches with the heart of God. In that moment, you are loving what God loves and hating what he hates. That's a flourishing life because it's a life that's not just consumed about you. Meekness, he says, flourishing are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Patient self-control in dealing with others. Oh, God, give us meekness. It's this ever-present recognition that as we deal with other people, they are broken. Jesus is the perfect image of this. I mean, aren't you thankful for God being meek towards you? To flourish is to not feel the need to always demonstrate your power, your overwhelming strength, your emotionally, physically, mentally. I, I had one guy, he's a friend of mine, and, and I'm not a tall guy, and he loved to like stand up like right next to me, so I'm like looking up like this. And he got some inner, I'm gonna put it this way, sick delight out of intimidating people. Like that's not a flourishing person, is it? Because you, you know and I know the kind of person who does that is astoundingly insecure, aren't they? They're really miserable. Meek people don't function that way. We flourish because we're not driven to dominate other people in situations in life. Some of the most miserable people are the people that are controlling people. They try to control every situation. Jesus did not function this way. We flourish when we long for righteousness. Flourishing are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. We live in the ever-present awareness of the brokenness of this world as we long for the next. The desire is deep. We want to, act, we want to see justice reign. We want to see righteousness happen. And so we act justly towards others. We want to see God break through this sinful world. Christ shows this in a most profound way when he lays his own life down for others in order to do the will of the Father for the good of the world and the glory of God. He lives a life that is just on mission 
out of a deep longing and desire. Isn't it true in your own spiritual life you have never flourished more than when you have just had this deep, passionate desire to know God better and show him clearer? We flourish in mercy. Flourishing are the merciful. They shall receive mercy. And the thorns and the weeds, when we demonstrate mercy instead of vengeance, Christ's mercy rescues us. It's a painful joy to showcase mercy to others, even as Jesus did to the thief on the cross. But can I tell you, there has been a flourishing in my life when I have let go of my right at times for vengeance and justice and just shown mercy. Man, guess what? I sleep better. I live better. I walk better. It's like I do life better. I flourish. I can't control. You can't control people doing evil against you that way. But you can walk in the power of the Spirit with a demonstration of mercy towards others. He says, flourishing are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. When we walk in integrity and honesty, there's a power and a freedom and a clear conscience. There's a joy in knowing that God is our judge and we are clean in the matter. There is a rest when we have a single-minded focus on God. Christ spoke truth and he lived truth. He is truth and integrity incarnate. He says, flourishing are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Peacemakers who walk into conflict with a heart to dissolve it, not to escalate it. Who choose relationships over winning the argument. The ultimate expression of flourishing in the world as a peacemaker is Christ who brings peace to God and man. He brings shalom. We flourish when we are persecuted because we are standing on God's side and not our own. Obviously, Christ and his rejection, his betrayal and death is the perfect picture of this. The last one, then, is a summary statement. It's the only one that has an exhortation. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you, utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Now, I'm going to pause there because I just want to point out this one very quick truth. If you will walk in a way that will cause you to flourish, this will happen. This is a foregone conclusion if you walk after this pattern. You cannot walk after this pattern of Jesus to live on mission for a flourishing life and not experience this one. It is a summary statement. It is an assumed reality. Rejoice and be glad. That is a command and an exhortation that is very difficult because now I'm being told to feel some way about this nonsense that I'm experiencing. How could that happen for your reward is great in heaven? Now, I find that fascinating because I was raised, and when I was raised and growing up, and I'm not going to blame anybody. I'm not blaming teachers. I'm not blaming parents. I'm not blaming pastors. But I kind of grew up with this mindset that somehow it was wrong for me to want a great life. Jesus is saying, if you want to live a flourishing life, Peter says, if you would enjoy life and see long days. The problem is, I didn't wrap my mind around or comprehend that his concept of what a flourishing life is just radically different than the world's. 
But if I would chase that, and it's okay that I chase that, and he tells you there, because he says, I'm going to give you a flourishing kind of reward in eternity. So get this, it's okay to chase a flourishing life now, even as he's promising it to you, because he's also telling you, chase it for then. Your reward in heaven is great for so persecuted the prophets who were before you. When we are rejected by the world, it shows our identification with Christ and the prophets. Now that is shocking because that tells me I don't have to be Elijah or Moses or Isaiah, Jeremiah or Job to be counted in their company. That's some pretty heady company. All I have to do is live a flourishing life here. This is going to happen. And so when this happens, it's a reminder to me of my position in Christ. So then what does it mean to flourish? Some of you are like, why has he waited till now? Because I'm just going to rattle some truths off for you. One, it means you live for an audience of one. To live a flourishing life, it's not, it's not eighth grade Steve, no fear, I don't care what anybody thinks. That is nothing but arrogance and selfishness. That is radically different than living for an audience of one, though. There's one person and only one person that should matter the most to me about what they think of this sermon. And I love you, but it ain't none of you. That's an inner war that I have to fight. What is God's declaration about what I'm doing in life? Live for an audience of one. He points it all the way through. Live for an audience of one. What does it mean to flourish? It means to live for an audience of one. It lives knowing that flourishing can happen during thorns and weeds. It, it looks like being like Jesus. To flourish is to be like Christ. It is to live to please God. It is to live out the power of the spirit of God's glory. It is to experience rest and suffering, joy and trials, happiness in knowing our Father is pleased with us, and confidence in a life that has value and meaning. The darkness of the Beatitudes. This is some dark mess. You want to start your philosophical sermon with this? Poor in spirit, mourning, meekness, hungering and thirsty. I mean, you're like, Really? But the darkness of the Beatitudes points to a difficult and yet amazing truth of the kingdom. In heaven, in heaven, there will be a vast orchard of flourishing trees. In heaven, everywhere you look, there will be flourishing trees. In heaven, when there is no sin, it will be like Garden of Eden restored, shalom restored, where I have fruit coming out of me every which way, and I'm engaged in creative projects and doing amazing things, and it's like for the glory of God, and I look over at you, and you're doing like all these amazing things, it's for the glory of God, and I'm like thrilled about what God's doing through you and in you, and we look over here, and it's just an, an unreachable to the ends orchard of flourishing fruit-filled trees that will be heaven that's not now what does now look like it looks like an oasis in the middle of a desert and can i tell you that there is a different kind of beauty to that because what that says is that we walk through the desert of life parched and dying 
and we crest some sand hill dune. And suddenly here is a tree as though planted by the rivers of water with fruit. And you know what? You want to plant right there and not go anywhere else, don't you? And flourishing now is all about being the little Christian, the little Christ he's made you to be so that you're thriving in the midst of all the sorrow and all the difficult and all the desert winds is a demonstration of Jesus and his power in you. And so your flourishing and my flourishing becomes a glorious image of a place of rest and of comfort and of water and of food and of shade where people can catch their breath and meet the one who enables it. Is that what the Beatitudes are about? Well, the next thing Jesus says is you're the salt of the earth and you are the light of the world. These are statements of human flourishing. And a life of flourishing is found in walking in the steps of Christ. Father, would you help us to walk in those steps? Would you enable us, like that river of water, through the power of your spirit, to strengthen us in the midst of thorns and of weeds? Would you help us, Father, because some of us feel like we're more in the desert than we are at the oasis. But that's okay because flourishing happens as we walk in your strength and not our own. As we live for the promises of eternity, but in the reality of now, that you also want to enable us to thrive. Help us to thrive, Father, for your name's sake and not our own. In Jesus' wonderful name we pray. And all God's people said. Let's stand together and sing the benediction hymn.